Good evening. Good seeing everybody here tonight. I think this thing's on. Okay. I'll tell you what, there was a, sitting here thinking, there was a time when uh, I really wouldn't have been too excited about being in church. I, uh, there for a while, but the only thing I really looked forward to on Sundays was uh, I'd go to Catholic Mass early. Because not that I really looked forward to it, I just you know, thought I needed to do that. And then I would uh, go home and start popping the top and watch some football. I did that pretty much until uh, the last game was played, and I'd go to bed and go to work and start all over the next week. And uh, been about 24 years now, I've been in church pretty regularly. Amen. And uh, it's almost half my life. And uh, I don't even miss those old days. I'd, uh, there's a reason I don't talk about that old life too much. Um, I don't want to dredge up those memories. I don't want to dwell on that stuff, and I certainly don't want to glamorize it. Uh, there's a lot of things that I did I don't even let my kids know. Um, no real reason for it. You know, it's in the past. Um, Robin knows some of it. She caught the tail end of a lot of it. But, uh, man, God's good. And, you know, it's, it's good to be here tonight. I'm glad you all came out. Um, and I know a lot of you knew I was preaching, and you still came out, so I appreciate that. Um, oh, that word got out. If you can get to Exodus chapter 14. Amen. Let's read, uh, start out reading a couple verses here, 21 through 23. There's, there's part of this passage I had preached a few years ago at the jail. It was called When the Wheels Come Off. And as I, I was looking at that, I was kind of centering around that, past, that verse there in 25. And I started looking at the whole Red Sea crossing as a whole. And uh, the Lord showed me some things. And I'm thinking, well, you know, i just take this a little different approach here. Uh, verses 21 through 23, the Bible says, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for uh, all those that can make it out tonight. Now, Lord, I just pray as, uh, as I deliver this message, Lord, you just get me out of the way. Speak through me. I pray, Lord, this will be uh, a blessing to somebody tonight, Lord. And I just pray I'm not a stumbling block. I just pray you get the glory and honor, Lord, from everything that's uh, said here tonight. The, the singing, Lord, I thank you for those songs. And again, I just love you. And I uh, thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. So yeah, as I was going through this passage, I seen that um, you know, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels to life. Not even necessarily the Christian walk, although it certainly pertains to that, but just life in general. And as I'm going through, and I seen there was something, the title of this message is always. Just one simple word, always. And you'll see why here in just a moment. But as I'm going through this thing, I'm thinking, this is, this is a picture of life. And, and there are certain things, there are certain constants, there are certain things that are always present in life. And there are things that I've seen here. And the first one I noticed is trouble is always nigh. Okay, you, got the, you got the Egyptians, you know, they're pursuing them. But what I thought was odd is you've got, you've got a miracle on the right hand of you. You've know, you got a miracle on the left hand of you. You've got, you got walls of water. And I, I forget which cartoon or which show it was. They, they, years ago, when the kids were little, we used to watch it, and, and it would show a picture, or it would show a fish or a whale or something, come right up to the edge of the water, and then it would turn. And I always wondered, you know, is that really how it happened? 
Or did any fish, you know, go a little too far and flop out? You know, they had to toss it back in. You know, I always wondered about that. But, you know, I'm sitting there and thinking, I'm like, man, if that's really, you know, they would see these, these sea critters come up right to the edge of the water and then turn and swim away. And then you had the, the, the miracle, the dry ground. The Bible says they crossed on dry ground. That had just been a muddy uh, uh, sea bottom just a little bit before. And here they are on dry ground. They've got an open path in front of them. So clearly God is leading them forward. Miracles to the right, miracles to the left, miracles beneath them, and a pursuing army of enemies behind them. And just isn't that the way life works? You see God moving, you see him directing you, you see him guiding you, you see his provision, you see everything God's guiding your thoughts, he's, he's getting you exactly where he wants to, and yet there's still trouble just around the corner. There's, there's still problems. And that, that's just life. That's the way, and the closer you get to God, the more you want to follow him, the, the more you want to walk with him, the more you try to go down that path that he's leading you, the more trouble is going to come. Satan's going to do more. He's going to, he's going to try and hinder you. You're going to get on, on his radar, and he's going to do more and more to try and trip you up. Um, so, you know, going the direction God wants you to go is not going to exclude you from trouble at all. In fact, it'll just make you a bigger target. The way I look at this, when I see this thing, the Israelites, they had two options. They could have pressed ahead and gone forward, or they could have turned around and, and thrown themselves at the mercy of the, the Egyptians. Now, I'm going to tell you, anytime you've got an opportunity to follow God, it's never a good thing to turn around and throw yourself to the mercy of the things of this world. Amen. No matter how afraid you are, no matter how scared you are, no, no matter how overwhelming things can seem, don't ever throw yourself at the mercies of this world. Okay, it'll always work out. Just follow God. It'll be difficult sometimes, and maybe you won't even know what he's doing. Maybe you, will just, you'll, you won't have a clue. But it's better to follow him blind than to knowingly go into trouble. Amen. As I was looking at this thing, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes I think he, he allows obstacles, especially when we're younger Christians. When we haven't had that opportunity to grow, when we haven't had that chance, that... that that opportunity to get close to him, I think we have fewer choices. I mean, we have choices. They had choices, but they didn't have many. And I think as younger Christians, a lot of times he, he limits our choices to kind of help hurt us in the right direction. Now, we're, we have a free will. I'm not saying we don't. And I'm not saying that he doesn't give us an opportunity. What I'm saying is I think he, he, he makes the choices very simple and very easy. It's like almost like a true and a false, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, well, I'll give you a couple options here, and I'll, I'll you know, kind of give you the, the, the cheat sheet here, and then you can pick the right, right answer. But as we get older, and as we grow in him and more mature in him, our choices get a little less defined. You know, occasionally there's still, there's still some obstacles there that's definitely not the way we should be going, but I think he, he, he broadens, I don't want to say broaden the path, but he, he expects us to rely more on him. You heard it Wednesday night, relationship comes from fellowship. Okay, and through that fellowship, you're going to grow closer to him, and you're going to know more of what he expects of you. You're going to know more of what he wants from you, and you're going to know, it's like having that, that little WWJD bracelet. You're going to know more of what Jesus would do the more time you spend in him. So when, he, when you get a little bit older, you ex, he expects you to start making the right decisions without as much hurting, much prodding. He expects you to be able to make those decisions and do what he would do and what he expects you to do because you spent time with him. It's just like a, a child learning to walk. You know, you don't take a child that's just taken two steps and say, okay, well, you're ready. I'm going to go across the street, and you come and meet me. 
Well, of course not. You know, the child doesn't know to look left and right and, and you know, get, get run over. You, you, you take little baby steps. And that's, I think, what he does with us in our Christian walk. He, he puts up some obstacles. And then as we get older and we grow more in him, those, those things start to go away in the sense that they're not there to guide us as much as, as he's expecting us to rely more on him. Um, you heard about it this morning. Pastor started getting on Abraham. I'm thinking of all the people in the Bible he had to preach about. And he's getting all over my first point. You know, talk about anybody else, not Abraham. But he had a good point there. You know, he said that God had said unto him. And he told him to go. And he didn't give him any real clear direction. He said, go, and when I tell you to stop, you stop. And eventually he did go. But then years later, when he told him, take Isaac to the place I'll tell you to go, the Bible says he rose early, rose early the next morning, he got everything together, and he got on the road. See, there wasn't nearly as much of a time gap. There wasn't nearly as much hesitation there. See, that came from the fellowship. That came from a friendship with God. That came with a growing relationship. So God said, go and stop. It's like that game little kids play, you know, red light, green light. And that's basically all the instructions Abraham had. And he learned to follow those things. He learned to walk with God and have faith with him. And he just simply did what God said to do. That's, that's what God expects of us. As we, when we grow closer to him, he expects us to just lean more on faith. Um, you've heard 1% hesitation is 100% disobedience. Well, he doesn't want a hesitation. He wants us to get up early and go and do what he said to do. Another thing about trouble I've noticed is a lot of time it's just better to confront it than to run away. You've heard me say over in Ephesians 6, you know, if you look at the way the whole armor of God, we're equipped, we're equipped from the front only. We're equipped to, to, to meet and, 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 and uh, front, on head, uh, front on head assault. You know what I'm trying to say. A head on, frontal assault. That's what I'm trying to get my words all twisted. But we're supposed to meet that thing head on. See, we're not equipped to, to, to run. We don't have any protection in the back. See, the way the Roman armies would assemble is they would have a line of soldiers and then a line behind them. And those guys had each other's backs. Now, I don't know what you did if you were the very last guy in the line. I, I don't know. I feel bad for that guy. Maybe they were the little wimpy soldiers that couldn't make the final cut. But see, we're supposed to meet, meet that stuff head on. God doesn't expect us to run. You say, well, to put it in a modern-day vernacular, you know, who's got our back? Isaiah 52, 12, For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear reward. He's got our back. Okay? He's going to cover for us. All, we, all he expects us to do is do what he said. Just press forward. Don't run from it. Don't run away. Meet it head on, and he's got us covered. See, that's, that's a promise that, well, where else can you get that? You know, who else can offer you that? Sometimes it's best just to get in the middle of the fray, turn it over to the Lord. Uh, last time I, or one of the times I preached, Brother Spurgeon heard me, and I was preaching on the Navy. He said, I heard more about the Navy tonight than I've ever heard in my life. Brother, I'm going to talk about the Army Air Force for a little bit. This is... <laughs> so on D-Day, before they send in the soldiers to, uh, to assault the beaches, and before the, the, the Navy started, that's all I'm going to say about the Navy, before they started their offshore bombardment, they did some uh, bombing runs. Well, they did high-level bombing runs, and they did low-level. We'll speak about the low-level here in a bit. But the high-level bombing runs, there was a couple issues. First of all, they were off schedule. They were running a little behind. 
It's the Air Force for you. you know. What can I say? Um, they, were, they were a little behind. The second thing, this was not their fault, but they had, there was cloud cover over the target. So they were, they were between 20 and 30,000 feet, and they get to where their, their targets were. They, were. they knew they were behind, and the problem was, because they were running behind schedule, they were afraid that the Allies had advanced too far. And if they dropped their bombs, they would be too close to the Allied front. So they hesitated, and they dropped their bombs a little late. Well, the outcome of that thing was they dropped their bombs several kilometers behind the Atlantic Wall, behind all the defenses, behind all the, the bunkers and, and the machine gun nests and the barbed wire and everything that was there to stop the landing forces that these high-level bombing runs were supposed to help uh, weaken. They did nothing. Not one German soldier was killed during that high-level bombing run because everything fell well inland. They were too far away from the battle. They couldn't see what was going on. They, 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 their intentions were good. They didn't want to harm the Allies. But the problem was they were too high up. They didn't have a clear vision of what was happening. Christian, sometimes, you know what, it's not always a good thing, but sometimes you just got to get in the battle, the spiritual battle. God doesn't expect us to go in there and win it all by ourselves. He's got us. He's got our back. He's going to lead you in the battle. But he can't lead you if you're not present. If you're too far away, you can't follow him from afar like Peter did when they arrested him. Okay, you can't follow him from a distance. You just got to get up there and trust him. Just do what he says to do. The next always I notice is in verse 24. It says, And it came to pass that in the morning... Uh, in the morning watch, the Lord looked upon the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. Another thing is God is always there. He's looking down through them through the fire and the cloud. He didn't just leave them there, split the Red Sea and say, all right, boys, best of luck, I'm out of here. No, God's always there. Yeah. And the same God that was there for them is there for you. Amen. He's the only constant in our lives. The only thing that we can rely on. Amen. The only thing that was there yesterday, the only thing that's there today, and the only thing that will be there tomorrow. Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. When I first moved to Ohio and started working down there at the airline, I worked with a guy, and he, he made the comment. He said, you know, the best friends you'll ever have in life are the ones you had in high school. And I see where he was going with that. And what he really meant was the best friends you have in life are the stupidest ones because his th point was they're the ones that will get in trouble with you. Those are the ones that will do stuff with you that they know they shouldn't be doing, that you know you shouldn't be doing. But, you know, that, that friendship, that bond is tight, so they'll stick with you and they'll do those sort of things. And I seen what he meant. And then one day I met a guy, and I realized, nah, my best friends weren't in high school. On, Not at all, not even close. My best friend... Jesus Christ. And I met a, uh, I met a guy that, that truly does stick closer than a brother. And I don't know why he sticketh that close to me, because I've given him a lot of reasons to throw me by the wayside. He's given me a good wife that I've given her a lot of reasons to throw me by the wayside. But she sticks with me. I was going to say I think she loves me, but I don't know that I'm willing to take that step. Yet. She sticks with me. Okay, we'll go with that for now. That much I know. Um... All the friends I had in high school, I haven't talked to most of them for over 32 years. There was a couple. Uh, the mid-90s were a bit of a rough stretch for me. 96 wasn't a great year, and um, 
At some point during that year, I took some time off, took a couple days off from work, and I went back to Pittsburgh to try and just, uh, just get my bearings, just trying to grab onto something that, you know, I wasn't saved at the time, I was still lost, but I was just trying to, to get a hold of something, some, some, something that was steady in my life. So I hunted down a couple old high school buddies, and one that I had known since second grade. And I hunted these guys down, and, you know, we hung out, we talked for a little bit, they really didn't do nothing much, we just sat on his porch and we talked. And um, come to find out that we really didn't have that much in common anymore. We'd only been out of school about six years by that time, but, you know, our lives had just started branching off, going in other directions. So those friends that I had in high school really weren't, it's not that they weren't friends, it's just we were growing up. We were moving on. One guy was still, he was a year ahead of me, and he still bounced around trying to figure out what he wanted to do in life. Another one, he had, a, he, he had an idea, and he was chasing I guess it's turned out for him. At the time, it seemed like a silly thing, but I guess it worked out for him. Me, six months after high school, I had my, my license to work on airplanes. You know, a couple years later, I mean, I was working on airplanes. So me, you know, here I am already in my career and got these other guys still kind of bouncing through life, bumbling around, stumbling, not really knowing what they're doing and where they're going. So uh, in some regards, I had kind of grown up and matured a little faster than them, and I realized, well, these, these guys really, you know, they're just, they're, they're kind of behind me in that regard. Um, even though I was going through a tough time, it was kind of hard to lean on them because they really weren't where I was in many ways. If the Lord allows, I'll be turning 50 here in a few days, and I realized that nothing that I, that I was really born with, very few things that, I, that were around when I was born are still, still here. My grandparents, they died before I was like three or four years old, so I never really knew them on my uh, mom's side. I never met them on my dad's side, didn't have a clue. My, my grandfather father on my dad's side was dead years before I ever came around and uh, never met his mom. Um, my, both, both my parents are gone. I lost a sister. So I realized the rest of us that's left, you know, we're getting older. And every day we're just drawing one closer day closer to death. There's, there's, everything's going to go away. Everything's going to fade. Everything's going to pass. But yet Jesus remains. And I noticed that, and I'm, I'm thinking, man, these planes that I used to work on when I, when I first got into to, uh, working on airplanes, I, the planes I learned to, to, to cut my teeth on, so to speak, for almost 20 years, shooting rivets and turning wrenches. Most of those planes are mothballed. They were cut up and smashed up years ago. There's still a couple out there. We still fly a few down here out of Wilmington, but not many. Most of them are gone. I put, you know, blood and sweat in those things for many years. All gone. Yeah, Jesus is still there. Amen. He was there on my best days. He's been there on my worst days. He was there before I knew him. He guided now. Say what you want, but you're never going to talk me out of it unless you can show me some scripture. He, he, I know he guides your paths before you're saved. Amen. I know he puts some things. How else is a 20, uh, I'm going to try and do math real quick. We'll just say 24, 25-year-old Catholic going to get saved at a little Baptist, Southern Baptist church on the other side of Riverside because he met a lady who used to go there with her grandparents. That doesn't even make sense. Oh, did I mention that little Catholic guy was from Pittsburgh, and now this is all happening in Dayton, Ohio, and he lived in Wilmington, and she... It doesn't even make sense. But see, God worked that whole thing out. You can't say he doesn't direct your paths. Now, maybe you know, he just he put us together. 
And then he led us to a little church. And then he blinded her enough where she would marry me. And then we went through marriage, pre-marriage counseling. And, and uh, you know, I got saved that year. The Bible says we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, the thing is, we couldn't be separated from him if we wanted to be. Now, we can, be, we can, get, we can get some distance between us because of sin. We can break that fellowship. You know, we can, we can lose the fellowship there for a while. But we're never going to get plucked out of his hand. No man can do it, and I can't do it. I can't throw myself out of his hand. So we're in him, and we're never going to lose that. The next thing we see here in verse 25, says, uh, and took off, so he was referring to God, and took off their chariot wheels that they drove them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Next, always, is God is always in control. You know, popping the, the wheels off those chariots, that's nothing for him. That's not a thing. You know, it's just, there goes one. There goes another. I mean, they're, they're just shooting off left and right. I, I, it's almost like a, a, an Abbott and Costello movie or something. You know, here, here you got the greatest fighting force of the time pursuing a bunch of ragtag rag vagabonds who's really got a whole lot of nothing except the stuff they brought out of Egypt. They're encumbered women, children, a leader that looks like Charlton Heston. I mean, <laughs> and here it is, the greatest fighting force in the world is just being decimated. And the Israelites haven't done a thing to them. They're, they're, far, they're a mile or so ahead of them. They haven't done a thing to them. Not a shot fired, not a, th- not a stone thrown. And here they're just falling apart literally at the seams. You tell me God's not in control? <laughs> you don't know my God. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? When I first got saved, I clung to Genesis 1-1 because it reminded me that, hey, if God can create the universe, you know, you think about that. You get the planets and you get the moons and he puts the stars out there and he puts the sun and then he just sets that whole thing into motion. And he just winds it up and spins her and lets her go. And we're always at the perfect place where we're never too close, where we burn up, and we're never too far away where we turn into popsicles. We're always on the right rotation. And he just put that thing in the, in the, in the work and in the play, and there we are. You tell me he can't handle your problems? He gets all that together, but he can't handle your problems? You'll know my God. Later on, he showed me some things over in Psalm 121 too. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. 121.2 says, My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. You see, before I could understand 121.2 and, and make that, build that bridge to Genesis 1.1, he had to show me some things tangibly, physically, through trials and tribulations in Genesis 1.1. That verse was there for me. So I told you 96 was kind of a rough year. Well, I did the math. I actually, this is how much of a nerd I am. I actually did the math. The last two weeks of 96 were actually not too bad. You say, why were they not too bad? Because that's when I met her. Last two weeks, 1996. That's 50 weeks that I'd like to just erase from my memory. 96%, I did the math, of that year were trash. Okay, 4%, two weeks, are worth hanging on to. 
And when we got married in 98, I'm thinking, man, life's getting back on track. Just, this is where I expected to be. This is where, you know, and again, new Christian. Well, actually, when we got married, I hadn't been saved. I thought I got I said some words, but I, there wasn't a true profession. That came later that year. So we got married in uh, April. In August, I actually made a true profession and got saved in August of 98. I think things are good. We're heading down the right track. And in October of 96, I think I got my dates wrong. Got married in April of 98, saved in April of 98, and in October of 98, she had a miscarriage. And that was rough. Because I'm looking, I'm thinking, I'm seeing my world all of a sudden that I thought was getting back on track, on track, and I'm thinking, it's going to unwind all over again right in front of me. You say, what would you cling to? Genesis 1.1. You think I'm dumb now, you should know me then. That's all I knew. That's all I had. I was newly saved, that's the only verse I had, Genesis 1.1. I'm looking at this thing and I'm saying, man, it's going to come undone. It's going to go into a tailspin. I'm going to lose everything all over again. And uh, God gave me one one. He said, didn't I put the universe in motion? Didn't I hang the earth? Didn't I put the moon where it is and all the planets? And I still believe Pluto is a planet. You say what you want. I think it's a planet. I don't care what the scientists say. God made it. He said, I think it's a planet. If I'm wrong, he can tell me, but I ain't going to believe anybody else. That's all I had. And it was, like I said, it was difficult because as 96 was a bad year and 98 started getting on track and then I didn't know how things were going to happen, how they were going to play out. But like I said, years later, he showed me that 121.2. But see, 121.2 in Psalms wouldn't have meant nearly as much to me as if I hadn't been through some things and God had shown me some things and gave me some hope through Genesis 1.1. And clearly my life didn't unwind because, you know, she's still with me and got kids and we're here. So I was getting a little bit ahead of the game. But see, once you get to the point where you realize God is in control, and once you get to the point where you realize he never makes a mistake, see, it makes those trials and those tribulations a whole lot easier to deal with. That realization, sometimes that's all you're going to have when everything turns south on you when the world just starts unwinding, when things just start falling apart. Last year, he was in the hospital. Went through the surgery. After they finally figured out there was something serious going on, and they went in, they did the surgery, and they took it all, got them all taken care of. And then shortly after the surgery, he started having labored breathing, started having some problems, and they, they put him on a ventilator, just, just enough to let his body breathe and relax, calm down. So he could start to heal. They kept him sedated because they didn't want him waking up, thrashing, getting you know, worried, not knowing what's going on, scared. I mean, good grief, you wake up, you got a stinking tube down your throat, you got tubes and wires and everything all over your chest and arms and back. So they kept him sedated. And I'm sitting there at his bedside. And if you didn't know anything, if you just walked in, you thought he was in a coma. He acted the same way. No response, couldn't. Couldn't respond to anything you were saying. I talked to him. I prayed with him. Sat by his bedside. You know what I didn't do? I didn't get full of rage and vengeance at the, the individual that caused that. I could have. But would it have helped him? No. 
I like to think my prayers helped them, or that God helped them. I was, you know that vengeance? If I'd have, I'd have gave in to that, that just created a gulf between me and God. It wouldn't help nothing. It created a bitter heart. Me and Robin were tag teaming. Had one in the hospital, another one at home all banged up. She'd come in and relieve me. I'd go home, sleep in a real bed, get a shower, get some clean clothes on. Faith at home, banged up, sore, thankful that that's all it was. But here's the girl that, you know, at age, what, 13? Two and a half years, I get my learner's permit. Two years, I get my learner's permit. Every six months, she was counting down. Three days, tomorrow, I get my learner's permit. Here she is on the couch, black and blue, banged up, sore, can't hardly move. Nothing feels, nothing, everything hurts. Doesn't want to get behind the wheel again. Guy took her desire away to drive, made her afraid. Easy to get angry at a time like that. I'm not saying I didn't, a little bit. But it wouldn't have done her any good. You know what I had to do? I had to be strong. I had to rely on Genesis 1-1. I had to rely on Psalm 121-2. Because at some point they may go through some similar things. And I want them to look back at me and say, yeah, he was kind of screwed up in a lot of ways. But boy, he sure was pretty faithful when that happened. Sorry, trying to compose myself here. You get a lot of things through going through those trials and tribulations. They're not always easy, but the Lord does things for you in them. You say, this is just basic stuff. Why are we going over this? Don't you, you know, half the church is Bible school graduates. The other half are going to be real soon. You say, why are we going through this? Because when you need something to cling to, the gap, blood-sucking vampires on Jupiter... That's not going to be what helps you. You're not going to get no comfort from that. You know what you're going to get comfort from? Matthew 11, 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. If you're me, Genesis 1, 1. God created the heaven and the earth. A lot of other verses you can get comfort from. You say, why are we going over this basic stuff? Years ago, I was a mechanic. When I got my run-up in taxi, learned how to run the engines and then moved around the airport, spent a lot of time reading, spent a lot of time in the simulator, spent a lot of time on the actual airplane. But, you know, of all the time I spent, very little of that time was actually procedural in the sense of how to start the engine. It's real easy now. It's all computer-driven. You, you flip a switch and the computer monitors the whole thing. If something gets outside the parameters, then it just shuts it down. Back then, it was a little more manual, but it still wasn't that hard. Excuse me. So, a lot of the time I spent there was learning how to prepare for when things went wrong, prepare for an emergency. See, with the certain engine back then, it was you know, you'd flip on, the, you had to get some air to the engine, then you'd open your start valve, you'd wait for it to get so a certain percentage, and turn on the fuel, and then you'd just watch, and then you'd monitor everything, watch all the dials, and if it started overspeeding, you'd shut it off, you'd just starve the fuel, shut the engine down. But then if you're up and you're running, and you're taxiing, and all of a sudden you get a fire indication, first thing you do is call for the checklist. Pilots, they're in the air, fire indication, they go to their final approach. They, get a, they go to put down their gear, and they can't get a three-down three, uh, down and locked indication. 
They have any kind of problems like that? Call for the checklist. See, the checklist is there to help guide you through that emergency. The checklist is there to walk you through step by step. Christian, this is your checklist. There's no reason why you shouldn't, when, 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 when times get tough, call for the checklist. Get it out. What do I do? Where do you start? For me, I'd start in Genesis 1-1. I've already said that, but y'all would need get, grab a verse, something God gave you. Cling to it. Grab that thing. Own it. And go there. And then let me show you the next verse. He'll show you th- some things, and they're a basic. It's not, like I said, that you don't need that deep, dark doctrine to go through those tough times. That's not going to give you the comfort. That's not where it's at. What you need is the basic stuff. You know, when you're sick, for me, when I'm sick, it's weird. I don't, the rest of the year, I don't like tea. But when I'm sick, I want hot tea. I want nothing to do with coffee. I want hot tea. I love chicken noodle soup. It's just a very simple thing, but that's what my body likes. That's what it needs to heal at that time. When you're physically or spiritually sick, you just need some simple words from God. Just a little bit of comfort. Just a little bit, just to get you through. Just a little bit longer. That's all you need. Verses 26 and 27. We're, we're getting in the home stretch here. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength. When the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The next always we see here is there's always something to do. Now you heard a message the other night. Brother Joe preached about uh, being a servant, but also finding a balance between doing too much and doing nothing at all. You know, finding that, that proper balance as we should have in all, every aspect of our life. That's not what this is about. This is about getting involved in what God is doing. See, he, Moses stretched out his hand, but that's not what returned the Red Sea. In the beginning of this thing, Moses stretched out his hand, but that's not what split the waters. It was God. God did all that, but he allowed Moses to have a part of that. And through that involvement, we get a better appreciation of what God is doing for us. Like if you give a teenager a car, they're not going to appreciate it as much because they didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. They didn't, you know, they just give it to them. One day they wake up and there it is. There's nothing to to appreciate there. And see, I think God does that. He allows us to get involved. And I think when he does that, when we see what great things he's doing, what big miraculous things he's doing in our lives, we realize how frail and how feeble we really are. And we realize there is no way I could do this. This has to be the hand of God. But he allowed me to get just a little bit involved. And just because he's God and just because he can and because he's merciful and gracious, he allowed me to just, just be here and just do a little minor thing. And it shows me how great and wonderful he is and how lowly and weak I am. Amen. So there's always something to do. There's always something to be involved in. Even coming to salvation requires some involvement. Now, I'm not talking about works. Don't get me confused. I'm not talking about works. But as we tell the little kids, the ABCs, you got to admit, right? you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to know that your destination is hell without a Savior. You have to know that you're going to hell without Jesus Christ. You have to know that there's nothing good in you that can get you to heaven. you got to understand you're a sinner. you got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You've got to believe that he, he shed, willingly shed every single known drop of blood. That he did it willingly, he did it freely. And he did it for you, and he did it for me, and he did it for all those that rejected him. And then you've got to know that he rose again three days later. You see, that, that rock was rolled back. That wasn't for him. He didn't need that out of the way. That was for us. See, he did that for us. Uh, my buddy used to have a business card or a bumper sticker. I forget what it was. He used to have this little thing on his toolbox years ago and said, he paid a debt he did not owe to, to cover a price I could not pay. Something to that effect. And that stuck with me all these years. I've seen that thing before I got saved. This was in the early 90s I'd seen that thing. And that stuck with me all these years. See, God lets those little things that seem insignificant at the time. He, he just, it's like an earworm. They get in there and they stick with you. And that's been with me all these years. If you want to get something from the Lord, there's got to be a personal investment. There's, there's got to be something. You've you got to put something into it. It's called a sacrifice. You've got to pray. You've got to take time to pray. Again, fellowship equals relationship. How do you build that fellowship? Through prayer. You gotta study. Study to show thyself approved. You gotta get in his word. Know your checklist. Know where to go when the engines are on fire. Know where to go when you're in a stall. Not you, brother. Know, know where to go when you don't have a three down and green indication. Get out the checklist. You gotta sacrifice some time. You wanna be part of God? You wanna get in on what he's doing? Give him some of your time. Show up. Get involved. It's like saying, well, I, you know, I never get to do any of the fun stuff. Well, it's because you never show up to do any of the fun stuff. Whatever the fun stuff may be, I don't know. Whatever you think that is. What I'm saying is, you want to be part of what's going on, what God's doing. Show up. He'll get you involved. He'll, he'll let you be part of it. He'll give you something. He'll give you a blessing for it. See, salvation is free. But discipleship, that costs. That costs you something. Walking with Jesus will cost you, but it's worth the price. My dad always told me, he said, don't make promises because you never know what's going to happen that you won't be able to keep them. You'll be, then you'll go back on your word. Well, here's one promise that I can make. Not one person, not one person will ever stand in eternity with Jesus Christ and say, that, whatever that is, was not worth the cost. Whatever they gave up, they're never going to be able to say, nah, I should have done that instead. No, once they get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, ain't nothing else going to matter. Anything, whether it's $10 million or, or an hour and a half of their time, doesn't really matter. It's all going to be worth the cost once they, once they see him. It's like that song we sang a little bit earlier. There's always something to do. Don't be afraid to get involved. When I was uh, talking earlier about the, uh, the high-level bombing runs on D-Day, well, they also did some low-level, like 1,000 foot and below. And they sent in B-26 marauders, I think some A-20 Havocs. They sent these guys in. And uh, they, they were in lower, a lot lower, and they took a lot of flack. Um, see, that's another thing. The high-level crews, they were commenting how it was a milk run. That, that was their exact terms. It was a milk run. They didn't even get any flack. See, they were so far off target, so far out of the way, the enemy didn't even consider them a, a danger. It's another reason you've got to get in the fray. You're too far away. Satan's not even going to take a shot at you. He's like, I'm not worried about him. Why should I waste my time on him? He's doing a good enough job keeping himself out of God's service. These B-26s, though, they were down there. Man, they were, they were just above treetop level. 
They were down there in it, man. And they were dropping these bombs. And the first wave went through, and they dropped their bombs. And the second wave seen, well, man, those, those defenses were pretty stout. Germans, you know, they, they built up some good uh, concrete bunkers. And the bombs weren't penetrating. So the, the, the subsequent waves said, you know what? We'll go ahead and we'll, we're going to drop our bombs. We're going to get them close to the enemy. We're going to see what we can do. But if nothing else, we'll at least make some foxholes for these guys to climb into, give them a little bit of protection, give them a little bit of cover. So you may not always hit the target, but if you're close and if you're in there, you might be able to help somebody else. You might be able to give somebody else a little bit of cover so they can deal that, that blow. It's not always about you. Maybe sometimes you just need to be there for someone else. But out of those B-26s, that's really not the point I wanted to get to. They delivered their load, and as they were flying inland, they were going to make an arc and get back out over the channel. They were going to stay clear of the beaches because the, the Navy was about to do their thing. They were going to bombard for a little while. So they, they flew inland. And the, during the night, the paratroopers, 82nd A, 101st British paratroopers, they had landed uh, uh, behind the Atlantic Wall, several miles, several kilometers inland. And they, they were taking over certain bridges and taking out bridges and, and securing towns and certain uh, vital choke points and doing these things that were strategic. And this B-26 crewman, as they were flying and getting ready to turn, he said he looked down and he said the most miraculous thing he saw that day wasn't the thousands and thousands of ships in the English Channel steaming towards Normandy. He said it wasn't the German defenses he said it wasn't none of that. He said the most miraculous thing he saw was a farmer plowing his field. See, that farmer, he could hear the guns, the skirmishes, the battles going on on this side. He could hear the bombs dropping on the Atlantic Wall. None of that many difference to him. He said, I got to get my farm plowed. He said, they're going to fight. The invasion starting. We knew it was going to happen. They're coming. The enemy's coming. He said, but I still got to plow my field. Who's going to feed my family? These soldiers aren't going to do it. Folks, in the face of adversity, there's still stuff to be done. Don't be afraid to get out there and work them farms. Do what you got to do. Okay, you're, there's going to be trouble either way, whether you do it or not. So might as well just do what needs to be done. <laughs> and then the last promise. Or I'm sorry, not this, oh, spoiler. The last always. Let's go to verses 28 through, 20, uh, through 31. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses." The last always, we have a promise, always. We, we, we have that promise. The, uh, the Israelites, they got across the Red Sea. They go to, got over on the other side, and God delivered them. He did exactly what he said he would do. Victory is ours. If you haven't, I suggest you read the end of the book. We win. Okay, we're on the winning side. God wins this thing. Victory is ours. We just got to get there. Okay? He's the, book, the end's already been written. As I'm looking at this, I'm thinking someday we're, we too will be on that shore. We too will be on the other side. 
And just as they saw the dead Egyptians and the horses and the chariot pieces parts washing up on shore, we too will look and we'll see all the dead bodies in the form of trials, tribulations, situations, circumstances, anything that stood in our way and tried to slow us down along the way, tried to push us back, tried to get us off track completely. We're going to see all those dead bodies on the shore. And they'll be just as helpless and ineffective then as those soldiers were that day. Those things that we see scattered about, they won't be able to harm us no more. They'll have no more effect on us. We're going to look back on that journey, and there's not going to be a memory that anyone cares to remember. It won't matter anymore. The only thing that will matter will be the present, and the present that day will be just like the future for all eternity. Jesus Christ. See, our promise that we have is that he will finish the work he began in us. The promise that he has is in my father's house there are many mansions. He's gone to prepare a place for us. We have a promise of eternal life, salvation. Can't lose that thing. What else do we need? What else is in there? What else can can the world promise you that even comes close to any one of those things? See, we have that eternal promise. I'm, I'm done. I'm right here. I'm just going to less than a minute. I read an excerpt from a book one time. It says, A soldier may retreat, but he does not flee. A soldier may lie in ambush, but he does not hide. A soldier may experience victory or defeat, but he does not cease to serve. So I'm asking you, as we're crossing this Red Sea, what kind of soldier are you? You willing to stand fast, not flee? Are you willing to be on the offensive and not hide? Realizing God's always with you, and furthermore, He's always in control? Are you willing to serve and get involved and not quit? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for these words you've given us. I thank you for this message, Lord, and I just pray that uh, it will touch somebody and give somebody some encouragement. I love you and I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.